welcome to G.I. Joburg 151. We always talk plastic, but today we're talking the written word. Um, we have a slinger of words in the house. Let me uh, introduce the usual suspects. You got me on the West Coast. That's Cujo. I'm going to sling it over to China. Uh, Steve's in the PRC. Uh, we haven't invaded Hong Kong just yet. <laughs> <laughs> but the media blackout is in full effect. Uh, more on this later. And of course, we've also got... Paul from Joburg, who's still got a chest cold infection thing or whatever, but still not dead, so... Yay! Ooh, <laughs> do you want some pity bandages? No, no, but I wouldn't mind a violinist just to come and play at my pity party. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't that, pack mine, sorry. Okay. But oh, you're not okay. the only Paul in this podcast. Is that right, Cooge? Indeed, we have writer of words Paul Aller. You might remember him from such uh, graphic uh, ventures as IDW's uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Even Samurai Jack, I believe, a brief outing there. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Going on right now, yep. Very nice. And uh, of course, he has dabbled in G.I. Joe. We'll get there in a bit. But just to get kind of a taste test, Usually you can kind of get a sense of an author by their indie projects. Uh, if I can, I'm going to take a stroll through some of your indie works. I guess just put a sentence on it and why the book made sense to you at the time, I suppose. <laughs> sure. Past the Last Mountain. Yeah, Past the Last Mountain uh, is a fantasy story about a, um, a dragon, a troll, and a fawn who are on the run of the United States government. Yeah, it's just a... A fun fantasy story about our obligations to one another and just about this exciting chase through the wilderness and kind of takes a lot of the fantasy tropes but put them puts them in sort of a geopolitical context. It was a lot of fun. Very nice. How about Tet? That's an ambiguous cover. What do you got there? Yeah, Tet uh, was a story. is an ambiguous book, too. Um, it was a story that took place in Vietnam, split between the 1960s and the 1980s, uh, about a, a Marine who has something happen to him during wartime and then comes back uh, 20 years later to sort of finish up some unresolved business. Yeah, that's a, that's a book I'm really proud of. I think it's one of the one of the better things I've done. Hmm. Strange Nation. Strange Nation uh, is well, that's an oldie. Um, Strange Nation is a book about a, uh, a woman who works for a major newspaper who discovers a conspiracy that ties together um, aliens and Bigfoot and doomsday cults. And so she she ends up being fired from her paper for trying to pursue this ridiculous to them story and finds out the only place that will print it is a weekly world news type tabloid called Strange Nation. So it's kind of a fun romp, but it's also... Um, has something to say about, about, about journalism. I used to be a journalist, and Strange Nation was actually kind of like my love letter to journalism about the, the obligation that journalists have to society um, with, you know, hmm. aliens. Wow. I have to keep my eyes open for that one. All right, right let's go to... Like it would be an awesome TV series, if you don't mind my saying. Carry on. <laughs> I agree. Orc Girl. Huh. Orc Girl, wow. Um, yeah, that was the second thing I ever did. That was self-published. It was a one-shot. Um, just a sweet little coming of age story about uh, a girl who's an orc who grows up in her village and um, her brother disappears when she's very young and she kind of spends her life trying to find out what happened to him and when she eventually discovers that it sort of changes the way she views the entire world so yeah that's just a quick 20 page one shot and also um, orc girl is part of the same world as a uh, 
as as past last film. When I did the past last film, when I put it as a, as a trade, I put Orb Girl in the in the back of it. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, okay, so you got like a, a a verse going, like a universe. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Clockwork Volume One. And Clockwork was the first thing I ever did. It was a um a self published book again that I put out um I guess about eight years ago now. That um was just a collection of twelve five page stories, all with different artists and um ranging in different genres. It's basically just me starting out in comics and trying to sort of like show off what I can do in different genres and different styles and it was a, a really fun book. That's clever. And last but not least, Kaboom Box. Am I am I saying that right? Um, you are, but yeah, that was that, that was an anthology, and I just contributed a story to it. So I, I actually actually don't even remember what story was in there. I think it was one of the ones from Clockwork. Okay, I, I'll wrap with this, and it's a heartbreaker, but it's a nice introduction. Of all the artists you worked with, if you were doing a biography, uh, autobiography book. Who's 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 color or drawing that book? <laughs> wow. Jeez. Choose your favorite child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My man Cujo. He's rather disarming, wouldn't you say? I also just realized um, as I was as I was talking through the end of those books, I was like, hey, I haven't mentioned the artists on any of these as I should have been as I was going along. So I was already kind of feeling guilty about that night hitting me with this. Um I think probably Chris Avenhouse, the guy I'm doing G.I. Joe with, um, just, and it's not necessarily like a comment that I, I like, like working with him more, that I like his style more than anyone else, but um, I I just think that, that that would be good for like a real life autobiographical story, I guess. But any any of them would be great. I mean, I've been I've been really really blessed to work with a lot of a lot of. You're gonna have to spin that in the tweets, I imagine. Um, welcome to G.I. Joburg, Paul Aller. <laughs> Cujo, with the icebreaker. Well, I'm gonna crack open with an icebreaker of my own. Paul, tell me, are you a Joe guy or a Cobra guy? I mean, just like the Beatles and the Stones, you can love them both. But one has to always edge out the other, right? I'd say Cobra. Okay. Yes. Cooler uniforms, yeah. more interesting tech. I mean, what is it that does it for you? Uh, I just, I think I tend to gravitate toward the bad guys, and like, like you said, yeah, the, the the style of them looks a lot, a lot cooler, a lot more interesting. So, yeah, but I mean, it's not like it's not like some strong preference to be honest. You know, it's not like I'm like you know, Cobra forever, GI Joe stinks. <laughs> um, I also think that just from on a professional level, I think a big part of it is because uh, the first GI Joe run that I did was very Cobra focused. So I kind of like my professional as a writer entry into G.I. Joe was was been focusing on Cobra. Uh, the first two issues of I did an arc uh, in a previous G.I. Joe volume called Siren Song. Um, and the first two issues of it were delving into past Cobra commanders throughout history. Um, mm. oh. And so, yeah, it was just a really, really deep dive into Cobra. And it was two issues in a row where there were literally no G.I. Joe characters in it at all. It was just entirely focused around around Cobra. Um, and it was also structured in such a way that I had different uh, artists doing different parts of the story. And when I say I, I mean IDW had that. Uh, and one of them was actually Chris Chris Avenhouse, who I'm working with now on G.I. Joe. So that was kind of ha- that was how we met was on this G.I. Joe story that we did together like five or six years ago. Excellent. And that was a story about how um, 
about how Dante was a Cobra agent. Dante as in, wait, like, which Dante? Dante? Oh. All rats? Don, no, no. <laughs> Dante, just um, just Dante Alighieri, I'm probably oh, from the Divine Comedy. That's what I was trying. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. No, I, that's why I thought that, and I was <laughs> like, wait, wait, wait. Don't be like, no, don't try to be smart, Paul. Just ask. <laughs> so, okay, if Cobra's uh, numero uno for you, like, is there a a particular character, or maybe even as as detailed as a piece of equipment? I mean, what is it that that um, draws you in. Is it the mystique of the Cobra Commander? That seems to be something that you have um, quite a firm handle on. Or are there, um, is there another character that kind of pips him as like your real in to the Cobra uh, mythology? I think it's the idea that I've always kind of seen that, that everyone in Cobra has their own agenda. So I think it's the fact that it really is like this, this you know, viper's nest of people with competing agendas and ideologies and Everyone kind of having to watch their own back. Um, I think it's that, that that dynamic is what what I find kind of intriguing. Mm. Bodes well for the new book because, of <laughs> course, we're seeing a world where Cobra's on top. So right. now those power struggles really have gravity because whoever's at the top of Cobra is presumably sitting at the top of... Is it the United States or is it North America or is it essentially it's the world? The Oh, it's yeah. most of the world. Incredible, yeah. man. Gee whiz, what did we do wrong? Or <laughs> what did we do right? <laughs> right. Yeah, what list is shorter? Hmm. I, I'm actually curious, um, and this kind of uh, backpedals, or not backpedals, but piggybacks of Stephen's question uh, with the Cobra G.I. Joe thing. Do you, um, do you find, or do you have a lot of control in the kind of story you want to tell with the current G.I. Joe book? Um, in other words, like, You've got Cobra doing all of this stuff. You've got all of the, the machinations that are working, you know, within Cobra against and for itself. Uh, is the story that you're trying to tell maybe one of like, oh, you know, if Cobra would get its stuff together, maybe they would be better at running the world? Or are you trying to show that, like, under no circumstances should Cobra ever run the world? Ooh, um, subversive. Jeez. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> are they going to yeah. do a better job <laughs> than we currently do? Because Because that's something that, like, for me, uh, personally, with, with Cobra, it does kind of intrigue me. And um, and I'm very scared of bringing this up on, on the on the podcast, but, like, you know, I, I've been playing a lot of games lately, like the Wolfenstein games, and I've been watching a bit of stuff lately that involve the Nazis, for example, okay? And in the eyes of the Nazis, what <laughs> they wanted to do is... No, no, no. But in the eyes of the Nazis, what they were doing was, like, they were making the world an amazing place. But in the eyes of everybody else, it was like... No, no, please, let's not let that happen. <laughs> so for me with Cobra, I've always found that angle interesting. Like everybody that's sort of working for Cobra thinks well, that what they're doing is making the world better. So this might this might run kind of parallels between where Steven is and what Paul's writing right now. But like you, your artist's uh, line work is clean, right? There's a lot of order <laughs> to what's on the page. Mm -hmm. um, Steven's in a real clean place right now. <laughs> I'd say um, clean in terms of uh, Big Brother is watching you, but not necessarily clean in terms of, like, spotless. I'd say Singapore is an immaculately clean city, whereas China as a nation, it's it's got a lot of character, man. Like, Well, I'm not drawing that parallel. I'm just no, saying no. that's interesting. No, I get what you mean. And, and China's an example of a, a nation where 
there is a lot of governmental control, a lot of big brothers watching you, and a lot of um, censorship, and you do feel a little bit of a yoke, but, you know, the surrendering of minor personal freedoms create this kind of utopia of let's all work together to take over the world. Similarly, I guess Cobra is that kind of organization. But let's let Paul Aller uh, step up to the mic because he's the man ultimately, you know, who's, who's running this ship, man. What, do you have any, any comments on the little diatribe you just heard? Yeah. Um, first of all, you already said this, but yeah, I do want to step away from the comparing Cobra to the Nazis just because, you know, it's, it's very important to me that, like, that they not be driven by any sort of racial animus um, yeah, or, or ethnic animus. But aside from that, um, yeah, I, I, I would say that in terms of like the, the question whether they can do things better, I mean, governing in general, and this is you know, what they're doing now is governing, um, is, is, is a question of competing values. Were you inspired? Did you enjoy stuff like 1984 when you were growing up? Like that kind of stuff. Is this what this is born out of? Because it, at least visually, it kind of looks a little Hunger Games, like those shock trooper vipers, that kind of thing. Right. I'm not familiar with the Hunger Games at all. Yeah, I, I, I did enjoy dystopian fiction. I think probably about as much as anyone. Um, I'm not really trying to do that here. Um, this is less dystopian and more. Um, I think dystopian is kind of like this is the worst case scenario where everything goes wrong. Whereas yeah. I'm. Whereas I think I'm kind of showing like this is sort of where I don't want to say that I was gonna say where where a lot of our fascistic tendencies in the world are heading, but that's not that's not true. So it's an exaggeration. Well, I mean, we're all fans of guess, uh, They Live. I guess I would say that it is sort of dystopian in the strictest terms, but I I think that like when you think of dystopian fiction, you just tend to think of something like very very grim, and I don't think this is necessarily a a grim book. You know, I think there's a lot of hope and a lot of life in this book. Anytime you're governing, there are a lot of competing values. And uh, two of the biggest competing values are, you know, liberty versus security. And a lot of times politicians do try to present, present that as a choice to us. And oftentimes it's a, it's a false choice, but there are people who will choose to have less liberty in order to have more security, more efficiency, because, freedoms and liberty do tend to make things inherently a little bit more chaotic. And that is something that we explore in this book. Um, issue three in particular uh, takes us to a town where people maybe have a different view of Cobra than you would expect people who are being occupied to have. So yeah, the, to answer your question, yeah, we, we do definitely explore the, that notion of like, is Cobra doing a better job, but at what cost and how are people going to react to that? That is very cool. You're on a podcast with guys that have been reading these comics since we were kids, and, I, and I'm sure that you also dabbled with G.I. Joe at some point in your life as well. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and we're supposed to, like, we're sort of representative of the, like, quote-unquote diehard fans. So, you know, we've kind of seen a lot of different, like, concepts of G.I. Joe thrown at us. And so when I saw an, my initial reaction to seeing, like, the book that you're working on now and kind of getting the rough story, I was like, oh, okay, they just, you know, this is kind of the route they're going. But what you've just said now has completely rebooted that. It's refreshed it in my head completely. I'm, I'm actually like, wow, I really want to read this book now. I mean, obviously, I want to read the book of G.I. Joe. But, <laughs> right. um, but on top of that, like, that is a really fresh take, and I really appreciate that. Because like you said, dystopian always tends to fade to gray. 
You know, everybody's yeah. like, oh, it's a dystopian future. Everything must be gray. And it's like, no, sometimes dystopian futures can actually be very utopian in appearance. But like you said, you've given up a lot of your liberties um, for security, you know. So, yeah. like, I like where I like I actually like where this is going. I'm 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 intrigued. Paul, this Paul is intrigued. Awesome. <laughs> well, it's up for uh, are, isn't it? You can order it at your comic book shop right now. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And you only have like I think three more weeks to do so before final order cutoff. So hop on it. <laughs> and this, the second, the first two order issues are actually available for pre-order now. Oh, cool. Okay, well I'm yeah. gonna go and do that after the show. So awesome. I did want to take a second to put a spotlight on your colorist, uh, Brittany. Yeah, Pierre. Brittany. Is that accurate? That's awesome. Yeah, um, Brittany Pierre. Yeah. What would you is now? Do you decide on your colorist? Do they team up with your line artist? Like, but I, my question is, uh, what does she bring to the aesthetic? Because I, I, it kind of gives kind of like a, almost like a. I, what would it, what is it in your words? That color scheme she has going. Sure. To answer your first question, Brittany was brought on by our editor Bobby Kernow. I think he he like ran it by the line artist, uh, Chris Avenhouse. Um, but I actually know Brittany, and I've actually worked with her before. She did a, um, a short Past Last Mountain comic for me. Um, so, yeah, I was really excited to have her on board. Yeah, uh, I would say that what she brings in terms of her color scheme is I think that she helps, like we were saying, like, her color scheme keeps it from seeming grim is a big part of it. I think that she does, like, just the right amount of, of rendering to play off of Chris's um, line art. And overall, yeah, I, I think that her color scheme just like kind of shows you that this is going to be a fun book. It's going to be an emotional book. Um, it's not going to be the kind of thing where it's going to be like a slog to get through. Right okay, cool. Yeah, because you haven't gone for a super realistic um, aesthetic. I see you've gone for like a very, quote unquote, like believable um, aesthetic, but also like like you just said, it's fun. It looks fun. Yeah, I think um, we're definitely balancing between like. A, a more, like you said, a more believable color palette and a more emotion-based color palette. Yeah, you know, which is which is where I, I tend to like enjoy my comics. I don't I don't tend to love coloring that's basically just exactly what you would see in the real world. I tend to love things that look a little bit more like a little bit more like animation, I guess, a little more a little more fun. Like comic book pop pop yeah. culture. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, no, I hear you. No, I hear you. So, Paul, I see um, in the, uh, the the panels that you have um, released thus far, we've mm -hmm. focused a little bit on the sort of the elder statesman of G.I. Joe, if, if, if you want to call them that, the Scarlet yeah. and Duke sort of characters. Um, this could, I mean, maybe there are two components to this question. It could be one, a more general one, and then maybe one that pertains to your book, book particularly. But... I was wondering what you would bill as the key relationships of G.I. Joe, you know, the character network as it stands. Like, what is the the, the relationships that, that form the heart and soul of the, the, the character piece that is G.I. Joe? You know, if you strip out all the action, vehicles, political intrigue, like, which characters have the... The kind of dealings or the history or the the context with one another that you are most likely to want to explore. What 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 really rocks your boat in terms of characters, character pair ups, I suppose. That's a great question. Oh, thank you very much. A lot of them I don't want to say because True. good. We get into them a little bit later. Then let's speak more generally, like um, conceptually, like GI Joe. I was I was gonna say the big thing is that like this 
And we haven't actually talked about sort of the core concept of this book yet and how it differs from all the past G.I. Joes. Um, and that's in the uh, we like, left we, that for full force. Chris did a great <laughs> job already. Right, <laughs> right. So we talked about the fact that, um, that Cobra has taken over the world, but also um, G.I. Joe itself is, is very different than it's been in past iterations in that it's not a, um, a completely military-oriented special forces team, but it's being run by the military but is recruiting civilians to act as spies and saboteurs, and it's you know playing off of um, some real-life uh, precedents from World War II in particular, mm -hmm. um, where civilians were recruited to, to fight against the people we're not going to mention again. Those guys, yeah. <laughs> the bad, bad people. The bad guys, yes. Or the, uh, the regular guys just being pushed around by a few bad guys. Yeah, those guys. I would say a big part of the beating heart of this is these guys, these new civilian recruits sort of being being brought into this world and um, training, fighting, at, at times killing when this is not something that they're, that they're used to or that they have any any experience in and we really watch their journey as they interact with each other and they become a really obviously very close-knit team so yeah like the old school guys like you mentioned like we have duke um and scarlet and stalker who are the instructors of the program but then we also have a lot of um a lot of folks who are new who are who are being brought in and then not not every civilian is a new character it's like roadblock is one of those civilians jinx is one of those civilians but, you know, in terms of the, the world of this story, there's definitely separation between, like, the older military instructors and the younger civilians who are, who are being brought in to actually fight on the front lines of the, of the war. Hmm. Good choice with Jinx. She does seem like uh, someone whose appearance on the G.I. Joe team was quite sudden. You know, mm -hmm. did did she go through the sort of the the? I mean, I'm speaking in in canonic GI Joe terms, and I'll open this up to Cooj and Paul. Like, do you guys think she went through regular GI Joe training, or they just reasoned, hey, she's so damn good, just slap a GI Joe badge on her, like you know, <laughs> kind of like shipwreck's introduction in the cartoon. He just kind of joined the team. Hey, I think protocol with that sort of deems that she has to go through basic. She has to go through some kind of orientation program. Because, oh, you reckon she just aced it? Yeah, she probably did ace it. I mean, if she's a Rasha Kage, which, you know, we know she is, it's not like there's nothing in basic that I think would be more challenging than what the Rasha Kage have done. So I think she pretty much just waltzed through it. But the thing is, it's still important that you go through it because there's a sort of um, camaraderie that comes from doing that, you know, mm. working through that kind of thing. Um, you know, well, I, I guess I, in I other words, that, Paul, I, or Paul Ella, I, I salute you for, like, acknowledging even in this kind of, you know, branched dimension to the, 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 the old school canon that is G.I. Joe, the fact that there are all these kind of like pseudo Joes in the mix and you've included yeah. one of them in, in Jinx. Roadblock's an interesting choice because, I mean, he was as Joe as Joe can, can be, but mm -hmm. the fact that he had this side profession, I suppose, makes him uh, a, a, an easier adapted character to being a civilian who's been brought into the fold. I mean, him being the professional chef, that whole angle. I see where you're going, man. Honestly, it's not really a question as I'm looking at them of like, you know, trying to think of like who makes sense as a civilian, because like we really are, you know, sort of shaking things up and Hasbro definitely pushed us to basically say like, you know, don't, don't feel beholden to past iterations of these characters. You know, feel free to, do your own thing and and you know and on the on the cobra side as well we have some cobra characters who are 
or in sort of different roles than, than they traditionally have been. And I think Major Blood is a, is a good example of that, where he's more integrated into Cobra rather than rather than being a mercenary. He says that mercenary passed, but as our story begins, he's he's definitely fully fully integrated into the Cobra machine. Mm-hmm. Well, would you say that like uh, when you write stuff, are you writing for the screen now and not necessarily for action figures? Like when you looked at this, were you like, yeah, this could be a TV series because the budget's right and stuff? No, I'm I'm writing for a comic. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Nice. Sky's the limits, and then some. So, with GI Joe's membership now kind of being sourced in everyday Americana. Have you ever been a fan of the concept of like core GI Joe cast and then a sort of a, a green shirt army or steel brigade? Like, have you ever been on board with the concept of like GI Joes being GI Joes and then these additional troops to sort of supplement the forces? Or should everyone be a named, codenamed Joe? I don't really have an opinion about that. Honestly. Okay. Because, I mean, I, I think I'm the only member of this podcast who is in opposition to the kind of the green shirt concept. Right. Um, like, you're either a Joe, you're Man. not a Joe. <laughs> Steel Brigade, kiss my ass. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, at least, at least it sounds like, uh, to answer your question about are people members of G.I. Joe, should they go through training, that kind of thing. At least at this point, G.I. Joe feels like more of like uh, something that would be dropped on you if you did something heroic. Like if Jinx was to do something, uh, be an everyday person, but do something amazing, they'd be like, that's G.I. Joe right there. You know what I mean? Right. And they would just be that kind of loose. Is that is that your lens on it, kind of? I'm not quite sure I understand. Um, you're talking about like in the world of the book or in, in real life? Yeah. Or? Yeah, like it's more like just casual environments and people observing things and kind of, well, I mean, it's the age of networks right now. Not that anything's that dramatic, but it feels like a very relevant lens to put on G.I. Joe right now. I think that's where I'm going. I gotcha. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And I'm, it's nice to see some new characters actually created. I'm interested to see who those are. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Tiger is the one we've already uh, introduced. And he's the guy who is a um, a delivery man before the before the war. And after the war begins, he starts to run contraband, just trying to help out however he can. But he feels like he can do more, and then he gets a chance to. And we have a couple other new characters who are going to be rolling out in the next few weeks and telling people more about. And uh, should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Stephen, do you have any more uh, mind breakers up your sleeve? <laughs> uh, this one's. Uh... Slightly less mind-breaking, uh, rather simple question. I know sure. that uh, your your past wasn't necessarily intertwined with the toy line, Paul, but mm-hmm. subsequent to working with G.I. Joe, have you ever been tempted to pick up some of the old toys or some of the new ones? <laughs> uh, I do have a his tank. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. yeah and, the reason, and that's because, again, in my, in my last G.I. Joe run, I had a a Cobra training camp slash orphanage where they were like training children to be vipers. And in that I had um, one of the characters like stepped on a toy and she'd been <laughs> down and picked it up and it was a little toy hiss tank in this little, in the orphanage. So like Cobra, the idea is that Cobra was like producing little toys of their own vehicles and giving it to the kids to play with. So, um, oh, so a while after that I was in, um, where was I? Oh, I think it was at a con. 
and I saw I saw some some of those same like little hiss tanks for sale, and I was like, oh, that's that's awesome. I gotta I gotta pick that up. So yeah, it's actually I turn my head six inches to the right, I can see that on my desk right now. Oh man, cool. well, firstly, excellent with that little fourth wall break. I love yeah. <laughs> meta moments like this that acknowledge the fact that you know we can tell realistic and and extremely true to life stories with these characters but at the end of the day we have a toy line to thank you right. know um yeah. these guys have definitely exceeded the the ambits of the the plastic trappings but since it is close to hand give us the Paul Ella 2019 honest opinion on the his tank give us a little mini review the his tank is fantastic I mean, it's, it's a stellar design it's nuts it's it's great i don't know <laughs> I don't. I don't have like an in-depth review or anything, but no, uh, no, no. Yeah. Just uh, your gut responses. Great. Okay. Because I mean, I I must admit, like, I didn't always have a glowing opinion of the His Tank, but subsequent to doing this podcast and the YouTube channel and just gauging GI Joe fans' absolute love for that iconic design, right. it's kind of something you you can't ignore. It's just yeah, for sure. It's part of the furniture, man. GI Joe will always owe a great debt to designs like the His Tank. Yeah, I agree. Mm, mm. <laughs> One of the reasons why we're still talking about it, I don't know, how, how long? 35 um, years yeah. later? Close, yeah. I think one of the things that makes it great and what makes a lot of the, the, the vehicles, both G.I. Joe and Cobra, great is that it looks both sci-fi futuristic but also looks like an actual thing, you know? Mm. Um, so they're, they're, they're different, but they, they don't look like some just wacky, bizarre creation. They look like something that you could potentially see 10, 20 years from now on the battlefield. Totally. The tracks are all wrong. It's got a glass canopy, but they're still bothered to sculpt rivets. You know, it, there's realism yeah. compounded on top of science fantasy. It's yeah, no, it's, it's the real sweet spot. All of these vehicles are put on a stage anyway. They're meant to be admired. So I mean, they are going to have eccentricities like glass canopies. I mean, some you know. theatrics. Well, you've just opened a little bit of Pandora's box. If you do have a soft spot for the vehicle designs, uh, how, if at all, can you uh, explore G.I. Joe's motor pool in this kind of resistance movement type storyline? Um, I would say we can see. Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> Good. Well, it sounds, I love where this promising. is going. Look, I'm a vehicle guy. <laughs> if you ask me what my favorite G.I. Joe toy was, I'd respond with the Tomahawk. So, right. you know. You managed to find a way to, to get a, a helo looking remotely like that design. I will, uh, yeah, I'll be your biggest fan. <laughs> okay. Let's <laughs> see what Tiger can do on a moped. Let's see what he can do first. <laughs> <laughs> that moped's going to transform into Scooter. It's going to be a GoBots crossover. Hold on. Before we get to our final question to go around the horn, sure. I just want to say that uh, thank you, Paul, for coming on and uh, – breaking out of your routine this is a social agent and we do enjoy uh, people bouncing off us um so thank you there brother um and uh to end it since you have also done some work on clue which is one of my mm -hmm. favorite all-time stories um let's do an author that kind of informs the way you think about the world when it found you i'll start just so it makes sense I'm going to say Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City, and College. That's who killed me. All right, Stephen, go. 
What? An author. Um. And the place where it hits you, where it kills you, in the fashion of Clue. <laughs> uh, come back to me. I need to. I need to think this one through a little bit more. Oh, oh yeah. The the dice man. The Norm de Plume is someone Reinhardt. It's not the actual author, author's name, but the book was called The Dice Man, and it hit me when I was in Ireland, of all places. Gotcha. Have you ever heard of it? It's a story about a guy who is fed up with life, um, considers taking his life, but then stumbles on this concept that he writes out six options, rolls the dice, and whatever he rolls, he has to do. That sounds like your current life. <laughs> no, dude. Like to be tied to to the roll of a dice. To basically remove all your agency and and leave it in the hands of chance. Pretty kinky, I'm, man. It gets it gets pretty intense. Anyways, continue. <laughs> I like it. Um I can only think of a murder weapon in a place where it happened, dude. So all like right. with the his tank in the Kmart toy aisle? <laughs> oh wow! Oh, I'm just spinning madness. We're not talking about books here, Paul. Oh, that's right. You don't read. <laughs> I do read. Of course you do. Learned. What do you got, Paul? Alor? Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking of so many. I'm kind of like cycling through my different options. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm gonna go with Robert Olin Butler. Um, his short story collection, A Good Sin from a Strange Mountain, back when I was in high school. Uh, it's a collection of short stories about um, Vietnamese immigrants living mostly in uh, Louisiana. And it's just a really beautiful collection that has a lot to say about the lasting effects of war and conflict um, through the decades. And it, it's influenced a lot of my my writing since then. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That's a nice that one to, to wrap on. And it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So good job, buddy. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> no, Paul, where can easy. people run you down on social media? Uh, the main place is on Twitter. Um, I'm just at Paul Aller, A-L-L-O-R. Um, I'm on Facebook, but I don't use it very much, and I'm on Instagram, but that's mostly pictures of my dog, which if you want to see pictures of my dog, then yes, feel free to follow me on Instagram. Dogs are cool. You'll see plenty of them on Twitter as well, though. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, admittedly, when I when I googled you, uh, just to do a little bit of pre-game research and stuff, I found a lot of your tweets uh, were the things that popped up first. Um, mm. So yeah, so I, that's, I that's see you definitely. Here's yeah. a question no, well, that does not, not have a good ones. answer. <laughs> if Twitter was around in the time of Mark Twain, Hemingway, all those authors, would, would their work have sucked because of Twitter? I don't know. It's curious. It's curious. You mean like because they're being distracted? No, I I never get this question right. But like, since the, there's this age, if you're a writer, like Hemingway says, keep it on the page, you know, don't talk about it. But like, mm -hmm. in a social age, how do you promote yourself without? It's weird, you know. It's writing on two levels, kind of. It is, and I mean, honestly, in a perfect world, I would I would be able to just write and not have to promote my stuff and not, you know, no offense to podcasts about it because it does, it does feel odd to me to, to, to talk about my work when I would rather just let people read it and decide things for themselves. But no, I don't think that it has any effect on the quality of it. No. Mm. The work is the work and the rest of it is just an additional thing that's crafted on. 
Okay, so you've successfully, you know, you've done some indie books, and they're pretty cool. Pretty cool to understand them, actually. But uh, that first book that you did, I mean, how how hard was that? Like, how rough was that on you? Was was it like a, a, a like an uphill climb, or did it go, go kind of smoothly uh, looking back at it now? Or are you kind of like, wow, you learned so much that the subsequent books actually just fell into place a lot better? Or has it gotten more difficult to do uh, independent stuff for you? It was a pretty huge uphill climb. Um, I actually wrote a lot before I started trying to get anything published, which is, I think, unusual. Like, a lot of people actually, like, you know, literally, like, publish the first comic they ever wrote. But, yeah, no, I wrote, like, thousands of pages of comics just trying to practice and learn the craft before I started trying to put something out. A big turning point for me was when I um, I took a class, the Comics Experience, on Introduction to Comics Writing. And uh, in that class, you'd write a five-page story, and that was when I started writing five-page stories and wrote a whole bunch more of them, and that was, like I said, that was what, what Clockwork became was a collection of 12 of those. So, yeah. And that class also had a big impact on me because it was taught by Andy Schmidt, who was at the time the editor of G.I. Joe, and he actually brought me on to do that first G.I. Joe project that I did several years ago. So, yeah. Nice. So G.I. Joe has pretty much been there for me since the very beginning of my career. Oh, cool, man. I don't always like to come our stuff either, but, like, Kujo and I, we, we just worked on something. It's really cool. I mean, it was quite an experience. It's called The Black Book, and it's just it's oh, a very cool. off-the-wall kind of story. That's awesome. So, yeah, thanks, man. And, uh, I mean, we, we went through a lot. I mean, I'm sure Kujo went through a lot while he was writing and drawing it. I mean, that's the side of the experience I wasn't part of, but I was definitely well, I was part of the coloring and some of the art directions. <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> if, Paul, if, Paul and I, if Paul Aller and I ever cross paths at a convention, we'll definitely chat up the indie process because... Holy yeah. shit, it's a grind. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, we'll chat that up another time for sure. Because, cool. uh, yeah, and then um, we do have a lot of people that, you know, like I, I, from going to JoeCon last year, you know, I ran into a lot of guys who had like ideas for the comic book and people mm-hmm. had written stuff and people who are drawing stuff. And, you know, even ourselves, I mean, we, we are also trying to think of ways G.I. Joe, the old directions G.I. Joe could go into. And we also want to sort of add to the mythos in our own way. As an independent creator, uh, comic book creator, what is like one of the most, uh, well, what is a single piece of advice you can think of? And it doesn't have to be the ultimate piece of advice. It's just whatever comes to mind right now. But what would you say is the best advice you would give to somebody who A, either wishes to publish their own independent book or B, get into working for like G.I. Joe, like working with IDW on a book? Like what is it that somebody needs to do? What is that magic piece of advice that's going to help them, you know, get there? If they, uh, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> um, I mean, working for IDW, obviously, is like writing other comics. But, I mean, it's, 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 that's a tough one because, like, if your goal is just to write G.I. Joe comics, then that's going to be tough if you've never written any other comics. And if you're not interested in writing comics in general, then, you know, that's that's kind of a futile. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of silly to be like, you know, just, you know. Never mind, start, yeah. Start making comics and 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 after several years, maybe you'll be able to write a G.I. Joe comic, but you know, probably not no. because just because there are okay. very few there are very, very, very limited opportunities for that. You know what I mean? So like it's I appreciate when I look back at somebody's biography and they have so many indie things because it means that, you know, that's what they're called to do. We'll definitely bump your your uh, stuff on Twitter and whatnot, and cool. uh, we'll pick up your book. I'll, I'll definitely chat it up. And awesome, man. Yeah. And thanks. And, uh, and thanks for the advice on that. that. Yeah, yeah thanks for, sure. for the advice on that, Paul. Like totally, because 
Uh, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of people, and I know, I mean, I'm in the creative space from the uh, arts and illustration side, and I mean, I also have a lot of guys who are like, oh, they want to work for this company, work for that company, and ironically, well, not ironically, but actually, the advice is pretty much the same. You know, it's like, yes, that might be your target, but the thing is, if you keep gunning for that and you keep failing, you're going to feel like a failure, so you have to actually sort of expand yourself and be willing to work for all these other companies, get that experience so that that company that you want to work for can see that you you've done the grunt work and that you know what what what's what and that you can actually work and do what's expected of you and uh, and then they'll see that okay this guy's actually got something to offer so I just wanted to see how in line writing uh, it uh, it was from a writing perspective versus how it is from an art perspective which I'm quite right. really, so cool yeah, thank you cool. so much man awesome man. <laughs> Seems like a good note to part company on. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's very, very encouraging to know that G.I. Joe is alive and well and brand spanking new storylines are being explored even now. It makes me very enthusiastic. And may I dare say this, but it seems like it's in very good hands too. Oh, thank you. Cool. You got me excited, Paul. I'm just saying, you got me excited. Awesome. Thanks. This is episode 151 of G.I. Joe Berg. Thanks for listening. Guys, be sure to check out the new G.I. Joe title dropping September. Hit me with the date, Paul. Jeez. Oh, oh, no. Wrong Paul. <laughs> September. I should know this off the top of my head, but I have to look. It's dropping in September. September I, believe, I believe September 18th. Um, and again, like if you, you really should pre-order from your comic shop if you want to make sure you get a copy and I believe the 26th of August is the last day to do that and be guaranteed a copy. Nice. Good. Alright. Cool. We will be checking in with the book and uh, reporting back. But, awesome. Uh, for now, <laughs> G.I. Joburg, we're out. My name's Steve. Uh, I'm surprised Red China has not silenced me on the subject of all things G.I. Joe just yet, but hey, hey, if you are listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs> <laughs> Revolutionary uh, podcast. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>